Have you been enjoying the series? All right, four or five people right down here say they're really enjoying the series. I've been enjoying the series, and uh, one of the things we've been talking about is anchoring ourselves in what we do know while we trace the trail of twine through what we don't know. And we talked about anchoring ourselves in the sovereignty of God, that He's in control. Even the longer you live, the more you realize how much you're really not in control. And the wisdom of God, that He knows what He's doing. It's especially important when we have no idea what we're doing. Wisdom of God. And then the goodness of God. He's always got our best in mind. And then the silence of God. He values some things beyond just answering our questions. Sometimes He remains silent on some of those. And one of the ways we've been unpacking this is hearing some stories from the blue chairs. Remember a couple of weeks back, Stephen Smith was before us and talked about his journey through some of the physical body breakdowns he's enduring. And this morning, I want you to put your hands together and welcome Allie King to the stage with me this morning. (laughs) Miss Allie, how many years here at Eagle now? So this is 20 years. 20 years. Wow, that's a long journey. Yeah, I, I looked a little, um, you know, less, few less lines when I started coming. Had two less kids when I started coming. So, and I looked just like this 20 years ago. <laughs> Don't have to say anything on this. Let the interview just keep on rolling. So, um, Allie, let's jump into your unintended journey with this picture. And maybe you can kind of start into some of the backdrop here. Well, um, again... With, with people that move in and out of a church, you never know who knows what stories. And so Jason and I uh, were married uh, back in 1992, and we did Jesus together. Um, we were a, a family that was centered around uh, Christ. Uh, we were part of Eagle as, as leading small groups, running upward basketball, uh, just doing the Jesus thing together. And uh, you can see Laurie and Lizzie. They don't look like that anymore, but just, <laughs> just as cute. And um, so that was, that was our story. That, anybody that knew us knew that that was who we were. Mm. And I also um, am, worked for Youth for Christ, so did campus life up here in, in the community. And so then about six years ago, uh, Jason decided to leave. It was time to be done with marriage. And that, hmm. even though I think we saw, I saw some of the signs of that, you know, uh, hidden phones, uh, a wedding ring that wouldn't always be on, uh, that I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. And, and any of you have probably been through this story, the moment you ask that question, like, hmm. why do you have your phone with you all the time? It kind of gets thrown back at you very, very quickly. So hmm. you learn not to ask those questions and feel very, there's a lot of blame shift that happens. And so for uh, two years, uh, when Jason decided to leave, um, I hung on with everything Mm. that I could, believing that um, no matter what infidelity had happened, that I could forgive and I could move on. So let's dig into this a, a little bit more. How about next slide, Ted? This is kind of current, just so they get a little context for what your girls look like. Now, that's uh, the family today. Um, But six years ago, when it became clear that Jason was wanting to exit, let's talk about your initial reaction and response to all of it. Just unpack that a little for us. Obviously, there was some shock. You had no idea, you know, from your perspective. 
certainly not a perfect marriage. None of us have a perfect marriage, but you never would have envisioned it going that direction. So I think uh, initially I was going to do whatever it took to hang on to the marriage, hang on to the concept of uh, being married. Um, For those of you who are single in the church or single again in the church, the church is for married people. I mean, I hate to say that, but it's a place that um, we strive to be. Everyone is striving to be married at some space Mm. in there. And so um, I... I pushed in to say, I want to save this. And so I actually was driven, what I believe, and I did it to myself, but driven into a lot of hiddenness. Mm. I, was, I, was, uh, I was ashamed. Um, and I didn't want to be here because this was the part of life that Jason and I did together. So my job I could do by myself. Mm. Um, shopping I could do by myself because I already did that by myself. And, but church was us. Mm -hmm. And so there was many a time um, that I just remained absent from here and would choose to go on a run or choose to go do something else because I was was holding on hope that if the less people that knew, Mm. we could recover from it. So talk about in making those choices as you look back on them, was it helpful to keep a distance? Was it not so helpful, like, as you kind of reflect back, right? You're obviously around more now, but... Right. Well, and I think that I think that's individual for everybody, but I think that what I had done, and it kind of reminds me of one of the... Probably a, a pivotal point for me. I went on a run, and, you know, when I... I'm not a runner. I'm a basketball player. So runs past a mile will kill me. Hmm. So here I was running... And on a Sunday morning, and I just heard Andy Stanley on church, and he was saying, you know, let God ask you deeper questions. Keep Mm. going on deeper questions. And so I was on this run, and God said, what are you afraid of? And I said, well, I'm afraid of being single. Why? Mm. Because I don't want to be alone. Why? And the questions kept coming and kept coming and kept coming until God finally said, am I enough for you? Mm. And I said, no, you're not. Mm. You are not enough for me. Mm. And, what, and until I got to that point where I realized I had built so much else around being Allie the Christian, Allie the campus life director, Allie the mom, and I finally just was hanging on by my fingertips. And mm. not that I ever was going to ever walk away from my faith, but just I had put so much around me I, for me personally, I had to get to a point where it was truly only about Jesus. Mm. And so, so some of my distance was me trying to figure that out. Uh, mm. But so can I flip a Go second? Ahead. Um, the other thing that makes it really awkward, and if I could give you any instruction as a church body, go and ask somebody how they're feeling. No, it becomes an elephant in the room really, really quickly. And so we all start talking code. And somebody would come up to me and go, how are you doing? Now, how are you really doing? Well, then they knew, right? But instead of saying, hey, you know what? I, I'm really sad to hear that Jason has left. How can I pray for you? Mm. How can I lean into that space with you? Um, is, although you might think that's a harder place to go, the silence for someone like me was mm. so much harder. 
So we played the guessing game for a long time. So you would have found it more helpful if people would have pressed into what you knew they already knew and just kind of break the ice? Absolutely. And just say, hey, I know you're going through a really tough time. Yep. How can we pray? That kind of stuff, just so there was... Yeah, so, so, so the initiation, because I don't want to lead out with, hi, you know, like the AA meeting, hi, I'm Alan <laughs> King and I'm divorced. That isn't a lead-in line. So you kind of want somebody <laughs> else to say, you know, hey, I've heard and, and I'm sorry that you're dealing with that. Let's, let's dig in a little bit to the kind of the initial set of questions you began to wrestle with, with God over this. And some, as you sit here today, you feel like God's brought some clarity as you look back on the journey. And then some are still working through. Let's take the first part of that. Just unpack for us. Obviously, you went through layers of anger and frustration, resentment towards Jason, towards God, towards whatever. Just talk about some of this, the progression through the last six years. So I think the first thing, the, the number day when Jason decided to actually declare he was leaving, um, I went on a walk with our dog, and I happened to come out into our neighborhood, and I saw two women walking towards me, and they were two women I knew and two women that had been divorced, and they were bitter and they were angry women. I knew that. I had lived alongside them for uh, a number of years. And I was like, seriously, God, that, that's who you're going to show me the moment I, <laughs> I hear this news? Anybody feel that? Anybody ever been there? <laughs> and, oh you know, I, I was like, God, really? And I will tell you, as here as I can, I can clearly hear the Holy Spirit. Hmm. He said, you don't have to look like that. That is a choice, and I am here for you. Hmm. And so from that day, there was a reconciliation that my life would not be marked mm. by a root of bitterness and anger towards Jason. I get frustrated at the things that he has done. I get frustrated at the things he continues to do. Um, you know, my, my daughters, they have had to go through a number of things that I would not choose for anybody. But somewhere in there... Um, hmm. When you profess that your life is about uh, wanting people to know Jesus, then that's what I've given my whole working life to, that kids would know Jesus. I've got to want that as much for Jason as I do for mm. uh, any of the kids that I work with. So just because it was personal to me, mm. I could not allow it to be something that I did not and still do not desire that for Jason because... I don't know. I mean, you get into the theology. Was he ever saved? Does he, you know, I, I don't need to answer that. What I need to know um, for me and for my girls is do I want Jason to have an intimate relationship mm. with the Father with or without me? And the answer is yes. Mm. Um, and then what do I do? What did I do with God in that space? Well, I don't think I ever blame God because. Jason's choice, because God loved Jason so much as he loves me, he had to give Jason free will. Hmm. And in the space of free will, his ultimate love is to allow someone to walk away. Hmm. And that meant walking away from me. That meant walking away from the girls and um, pursuing a lifestyle that I think he's still somewhat entrapped by. Um, but I never blame God. That, that's not... That's, you know, in fact, I think that what it does is, for me is that it allows me to go on a journey with God that says, in the midst of what we're going to struggle with, are you enough? 
And from that early run, that mm. has always been my cry. Could you talk a little bit more, Allie, about how you made the turn from not going the anger, bitterness, resentment route? And what, what, have, been, what have been the things that have kept maybe the default lever in your heart towards the forgiveness, compassion, grace? Because, I don't know about you, I'm very inspired when I hear someone say those things, but we all know how difficult that is when someone, you're on the receiving end of a lot of sin of someone else's choices, and it's inspiring to hear that you've kept the lever there. Maybe give some folks a couple of things that, what's, what's facilitated that? Because my observation as a pastor is there's far more humanity going down the other track on the other side of these. Bitterness, anger, resentment. But you, you've made some, the last six years have been marked more about forgiveness, grace. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, I think the one thing that we've kind of declared as a family is that when you get hurt, when dad maybe doesn't show up, when um, child support stops coming in, all of those things that keep going, um, declare it for what it is and say, you know, that really hurts, that, that sucks, I don't want to live in the middle of that. Mm. But then to say, now what do I do with that? So paying attention to the emotion, but not being led by the emotion. Um, and then also I've just had some really good friends al- along the, the years that um, you can declare it hurts to people. Yeah. And, and then also other people can step in when you're kind of maybe crossing that line and trying to you know, declare and drag someone down. That, mm. um, just, that, just that encouragement and that account- accountability that somebody can be empathetic once they're in the pit with you, I think sometimes it gives them the, the right to say, hey, be really careful because that's not hurting Jason, that's hurting you. Hmm. I'm guessing you had to make some choices about who you're going to spend time with, and there were probably some really intentional, I'm not going to hang out with this particular group because of what comes out of that, right? Well, it's kind of, that's why, you know, I'm better at my running because then when I see those two ladies, I can run quicker <laughs> in that direction. I'm going that going way. going that way. Um, actually, you know, that's, I think now I can enter into those relationships because God has saved me from so much, that, mm. that emotion and that, that feeling, so I can be around people who are struggling. And I want to enter into a place where people are struggling now because... When you know what the freedom is like on the other end, where you don't have to struggle with that, you want that for other people. Yeah. Um, but early, in the early few years, I had to I had to be around people that spoke truth, mm-hmm. would pray for me, uh, would ask tough questions, and and ultimately would care about me and the girls. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little about what the grieving process looked like for you? Because there was. And there still is, I think, for you, right? Different stages of this grieving. You had a vision. I mean, in 1992, when you and Jason were walking the aisle, you talked about, I was in some of those conversations where you were envisioning what life together was going to look like. Yeah. Well, we we had dreams, you know. It's it's like when when you enter into a relationship, I mean, our life would have been full of many more kids, lots of foster kids, lots of adopted kids. We had decided that journey together. And so you do have to let go of of Mm. parts of those dreams. And, and, um, you know, 
early on, somebody spoke the Isaiah 55 and 61, some of those key verses in there that talk about God doesn't just replace, you know, the thorns or the thistles with a dirty ground. I mean, it's not empty. It's replaced with, um, you know, the the olive tree, it's, it's replaced with a crown, the, the ashes are replaced with beauty. And so it's that truth that mm. God isn't, although some of those dreams are hard, and I, I will not pretend, I am, there is part of me, unless I am married again, um, and, and have figured out some of that part of the journey, is when my kids get married, mm. I know that's going to be a real tension of a day for me. So it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, that you continue to mourn it, but God's somewhere in there, whether it's all come to fruition yet or not, mm-hmm. uh, singleness or not. Um, God promised me that He would replace that pain with something more beautiful, mm-hmm. not just a wasteland. And so that's we continue to hold on to that. And you're seeing Him talk a few things about the ways you're seeing Him come through for you. Because in this journey, as you've decided, hey, God, I'm going your way with this, how have you seen him show himself faithful? You know, I, it's one of those things that, you know, again, I, I, can, I can't hardly see you, so I can just be brutally honest, right? There's like, yeah. I can't see your faces, so it's okay. Um, you know, I've tried that Match.com and all the rest of it. Well, number one, men, if you're on that site, please tell the truth about how tall you are, right? Oh, my God. Because it's a 5'11 woman and you say you're 6 foot, you lie. Come on, guys. You lie. Come on. Especially if they're Christians, they're supposed to be honest. I know. So, anyway, I have tried that. I'm I'm not on there again right now. So, I think that, I think for me... um, how God shows up is, is just the, the simplicity and the, um, just the rawness of the relationship I have with Jesus now. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hope that I am um, blessed to be able to see stories of other people and say, God is in the midst of whatever that journey is and being mm-hmm. enter, be able to enter into that with people and know that our brokenness does not hurt the gospel mm-hmm. and however I can get in that space. So, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, just to be a little bit more empathetic is, is a huge win for me because I'm a very driven person mm-hmm. and I like to conquer the mountain and so to slow down and recognize who people are has been such a gift to me. Mm-hmm. Allie, last question. Let's, let's end with some things that are still in the category of mystery. I mean, you walk this out, there's still some things hanging out there where you go, Lord, I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, I, I mean, it probably goes back to the dating thing. Um, when somebody has told you in one way or another and ultimately left you, um, it's really hard not to believe that you still have value from a from a human relationship standpoint. And so I, I still am scared to death mm. of putting myself out there in, in certain friendships and certain potential dating situations because I am still afraid mm. of being rejected. Mm. And so I have to take that to God. Um, 
Mm. Because you, you question who you are because somebody has spent a number of years telling you that you don't have value in their life anymore. Mm. So that's my struggle. Mm. Well, Lori and Lizzie, I know you're out there and uh, we want you to know and Allie, we want you to know that we love you. We're a family and we're so grateful that you've opened up more of this journey. Every blue chair has a story. This is Allie's story. There's a lot more to it. She welcomes conversations about it. At the end of the message, she's going to be available to pray up here um, with any of you who maybe are right in the middle of some things. You know, we're, everybody's going through something, and maybe your family or marriage situation has some similar parallels here. Allie's a great person to talk and pray with. And the other picture I think Allie gives us is, how about this? How about how God's continuing to use her life and how about her willingness to serve and lay it on the line for Jesus week after week in the midst of all that brokenness, in the midst of the twine going all those different directions. Um, she's never given up on God's plans and God's purposes, even though some folks around her have really, it would have been really easy to derail and it would have been really easy to pack it up and say, you know what, I'm going to go flip burgers at Burger King or something else then sit and lead a ministry like she leads at Youth for Christ and make the impact that her and her staff are making in the inner city and in the suburban life. So, Allie, thank you for being an example of that. I want to pray for you, and then we'll give her a round of applause. Jesus, thank you so much for Allie's life. Thank you so much for her willingness to honestly and transparently say, here I am. There's some stuff I still don't understand, but I'm going your way. Thank you for that picture. Thank you for the heart of forgiveness and grace that she continues to extend towards the big mess. And we unite our hearts now. Several hundred of us in this room right now call out to you on Jason King's behalf and ask for a heart to turn. For what Second Corinthians says, a godly sorrow that brings repentance to turn a life. In your mercy and grace, would you do that? And would you continue to carry Allie and Lori and Lizzie along Make up for all the gaps of this. We commit them unto you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's give Allie a round of applause. Thank you, Allie. Open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. I thought what we do is chat for a few moments about how should we respond as a people, how would God direct us to respond as a people when we're on the receiving end of the sin of others. Because a large section of Allie's story points to, a large section of many of your stories point to, is that not that you're perfect, but that we're committed to go a certain direction, to honor God, to build a certain kind of life, but as we know, we can't control the choices of those around us, and some others have chosen to go a different direction, who maybe broke some covenants. And what do we do? Well, how would God have us respond? And um, then from that, we're going to have a time just to give you an opportunity to pray with and for you. So Joshua chapter 7, here's the context. In Joshua 6, the people of God went into Jericho, conquered the city. And then he gave them one key instruction when the walls came down and the people were to go in. In Joshua 6, he said, make sure you don't stockpile a bunch of the devoted things, the idols, the things that the other people were bowing down to and worshiping. They would have been valuable. They would have been like gold and silver and some of those other things. Don't 
take those as your own, leave them, because he's, again, looking at purity, he's building a people who he doesn't want bowing down to those things. That's one key instruction. One guy named Achan decided, I'm going to do it anyway. So Achan took some of the devoted things, buried them in his tent, and hid them, and then trotted along like life was going to go on just fine. And that's where we pick up the story now, verse 2 and following. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few thousand men are there. Verse 4, so about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. First principle from this chapter about what do you do when you're on the receiving end of the sin of others is to recognize your sin, my sin, never just affects you. It always affects those around you. Achan took some devoted things, and they're having 36 funerals in the Israelite community. A husband decides he's going to exit the family unit. A wife and children are left to try to grow up and work through all the stages of life without him. Your sin never just affects you, which means there's the concept in our culture of private sin the Scriptures know nothing about. There is no such thing as private sin. You can't just indulge in a little, a little anger here and a little greed there and a little lust there and a little pride there and think it just affects you. It absolutely affects you. Hear that clear? Yes, it affects you, but it's a bold-faced lie to say it only affects you. It affects everyone around you. And here's Joshua 7. The people have a great victory in Joshua 6, coming right off the heels of a great victory. Here's a great fall, which, by the way, is another principle. We're most susceptible to some of our great falls right on the heels of some great victories. So a word to those of you who were baptized last week. Here's an important storyline for your lives. You've had a Joshua 6 moment in the tank up here. How encouraging was last Sunday? How encouraging are 28 lives before us coming up out of those waters? How encouraging was it to see the husbands and wives or the fiancés in the tanks together? How encouraging was that? And they come up out of the waters, and they're all in, and they drive their stake in the ground. It's Joshua 6. Walls of Jericho are coming down. I'm going Jesus' way. Be careful now, because right on the heels of that, you could be thrust into a Joshua 7. Achan just decided, you know what? I heard what God said. I'm going to do this anyway. And his sin, his choice, affected all the community. Not only are 36 funerals happening, did you notice the text said the whole community is melting in fear? Did you see that? The sin of one person impact the whole family, whole group, whole church, whole community, everybody's impact. And I think that's a really important thing to understand. Verse 6 and following gets us the next principle. Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground. Before the ark of the Lord. Remaining there till evening. That's the role of a spiritual leader. 
When he's recognizing there's some defilement in the camp, he's going to be on his face before God and say, God, this can't be. Something's got to change. The elders of Israel did the same, sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, O sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Anybody ever been there where you look back on the trail of twine in your life and you go, well, if only this, Lord, we wouldn't have done this. Here's Joshua thinking we had a great victory. And he said, hey, there's another camp we need to take on AI. It's like, ah, oh, they're not that big of a deal. It's kind of like, like preseason. It's kind of like, yeah, we don't need to send out the full troops. Just kind of send second and third stringers out there. We'll be fine. And they get slaughtered. And then Joshua's like, what's going on with this, Lord? Did you just bring us out here to destroy us? We should have just stayed over there. At least we could have lived on the other side of the Jordan versus dying on this side. That's when the twine went that way. And you go, well, I could have lived over here. I'm dying over here. That's where Joshua and the group are at. Verse 8, oh Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Ha! Huh. How is Joshua preoccupied with? He's focused on whose glory here. He's like, God, you got a lot of eggs in this basket. God, you got a problem. It's pretty easy, right, when we get on the receiving end of the sinful choices of others. I found in my life, when I'm on the receiving end of pain, I can become very inward and self-centered. Like my pain can just turn life in on itself. And one of the things I'm challenged by with this storyline is how Joshua, though certainly he was in a lot of pain because of this mess, he, his, his week looked a lot different because Achan didn't do what God wanted him to do, but he's preoccupied with the offense towards God. I want more of that. He's saying, God, you got a problem here because we're your people you got a lot of eggs in this basket. Your glory, your name, your fame are on the line. And defilement cannot stay in the camp. So what are you going to do about this? I want more of that. I think our response to the simple choice to be continually preoccupied. I'm inspired by what Allie's default in her heart. I see her right. Her heart drifts towards the heart of the father towards her versus the heart of a human towards another. Because we don't have to, you don't have to have a large discussion of what a human response is to the sin of others. Just pick up your news feed and scroll through it or flip on any of the crazy shows that are on TV. It's, it's obvious human response to someone sinning against another human. But what's, what's a real mark of a follower of Jesus is when you turn and say, what's God's response to the sin of others? That's where Joshua was at. That's where I saw Allie's story at. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, hey, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? <laughs> you know, there is a time to pray. Absolutely important to pray, but I love it in the scripture when God says, hey, by the way, get off your face, get off your knee. We're done praying about this. It's time to get moving. And in local church life, we can get caught up in this, right? We can get caught up. We can be in praying and waiting mode so long that we ever next, we need to get to verse 10 at some point. Hey, get up off your face and get to deal with the situation that he's made clear need to be dealt with. And so there's a role of prayer. He's on his face before God. God, you got a problem. Do something about this. That's prayer. And now secondly, God's like, all right, I'm going to do something about it. Notice how God's going to do something about it. How is he going to do something about it? Joshua, I pick you. Huh. 
So careful now, when you immediately, you start pointing out, hey God, you got a problem here, I'd like you to work something out. Guess what's going to come right on the heels of that? You and I are going to be most likely involved in whatever that is. Are you ready for that? Because you can't just, God, you got a problem here, and then go, hey, yeah, could you send them to go deal with that? No, it doesn't work that way. God's like, all right, I got a problem here. Here's someone who's following me and listening to me. I pick you. And I'm going to have you now represent what I want to get done because that's how God gets stuff done in this world. Primarily, God gets stuff done in this world through his people. That's why we're called the body of Christ on earth. So when God wants to get something done, in the king family, as you dialogue with Allie, here's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear about how the body of Christ on earth continues to surround Lizzie and Lori and Allie, and yes, even Jason at points, continues to represent how God is coming for this family. God has not given up on this family. God still has plans and purposes. What we didn't talk about in the interview is how about Lori spending nine months overseas missions work, taking Jesus' heart to the nations as a young lady sorting out her call in this life. How does that happen? Because God's recognized, right? He's got some things he needs to work there. Guess who's been involved in that? All of you have been a key part of that and many others who aren't in this room because that's what Joshua would say. Hey, Joshua, I got something for you to do now. Stand up. Get off your face. Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, what should be jumping out at you right now? Who sinned? Achan. Achan took the devoted things. How does God see it? Did anybody pick up on the plural side of this? He says, hey, Israel. Israel's taking the devoted things. They, plural. I'm like, wait a minute. Anybody else in the camp going, hey, wait a minute. You're throwing all of us under the bus. Achan's the one. Now listen, it's coming. Achan's going to get his due. But follow this now. Here's the second principle in this whole story from this whole thing. God still expects holiness from the remnant that's left behind. Really important when you're on the receiving end of the sin of others. Because when you're sinned against by another person's choices, here's what's easy to do. Well, he did this, so now I'm going to, uh. Well, she this, now I'm, and one person's sinful choices, can, you can rationalize in your head to respond with a bunch of sin in response. And that's not going anywhere good. And God's saying, hey, look, Achan, he made a mistake. His day's coming. But here's the deal. His mistake doesn't change God's standard for the rest of the group. God's expectation for the community of Israel is that they handle things in holiness. The word is in verse 13, look, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, that which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. That word I put in your notes comes from the Hebrew word kadesh. It means cleanse, purify, set apart as holy. So you're saying, hey, Achan tanked it over here. Whole community is contaminated. I'm expecting holy, I'm expecting kadesh, consecration, purity from the whole group. So we've got some work to do together. We've got to cleanse from within. 
And then he sets up some circumstances where he goes to Achan and he calls him to give an account. And because Achan is caught, he begins to confess. And you guys know the difference, right, between sorrow for getting caught versus a godly sorrow that brings repentance? There's a difference. The way you sift through the difference is this question. You say, hey, would we be having this conversation if you weren't caught? Unfortunately, I have to have this often in my office. It's not one I enjoy. But it's, I get, try to get to the, are we in worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? Here's how you get to that. Would we be having this dialogue right now if you weren't caught? Unfortunately, often I hear, no. Which tends to point to what? Well, there's a sorrow for hurting others. I'm talking about is there a brokenness before a holy God for how you violated a covenant, how you've defiled his name and the ripple effect to the relationships around you? Is there a brokenness in your heart over this defilement? That's godly sorrow that brings repentance. And I found you can't really fake that. You can't fake that. That tends to be pretty obvious. And in Achan's case, as the story unfolds here, they call him, Achan, you're caught. Of course, Achan comes out, yes, 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 you got me. Here's the stuff. I buried it. I did it. And obviously, they detected it must not have been the cleansing that God was looking for because at the end of the story, they take Achan and his family to the valley of Achor, And in the valley of Achor, they stone the family and they burn them to death. And they pile up a heap of rocks and it becomes a symbol of remembrance. And you say, geez, that's a really harsh punishment for that. Lengthier discussion needed there, but let me just say this about it. God obviously saw the only way for this community to be Kadesh, consecrated, purified, usable with him to go forward with, he obviously saw Achan and his family had to be removed from the scene. We're not given all the details why, but God's the one in charge of that. And he said, hey, this Valley of Achor experience is a time where some things had to get cut off from the community. And I don't want you to misunderstand me in this point, but I want you to hear me really clear in this. There are some family dynamics some marriage situations where the only way for the family unit to go forward is to the valley of Achor, and some things have to get cut off. Don't misunderstand me in saying, well, Jesus is clear that he's always about keeping the family together. Yes, God's always wanting husband and wife, husband, wife, kids staying together. He's about reconciliation, about bringing it together. Absolutely, that's the higher principle, God's at work. But hear this now. There are some situations, abuse situations, abandonment situations, adultery situations, addictive pattern situations, where to keep that family unit together is so toxic and so destructive, the only pathway forward is to the valley of Achor, and a relationship has to be cut off for the whole unit to continue to move forward in love and service and devotion to God. That's called the valley of Achor. 
And some of you have walked through that in your own family life. I think that's, if I had to put a biblical phrase on Allie's journey, I would say she's gone through a personal valley of Acor experience in her relationship with Jason over the last six years. Because he continues to make the choices of which it wouldn't be wise for her to submit her girls and herself to that continued abandonment kind of pattern. Of course she's been crying out to God for there to be another way, for there to be a turning point. And if there was, she'd be the first one at the table to work on reconciliation. But because there hasn't been one, it would be, I think, a Valley of Acor moment. And some of it, we have to pray and discern that. And I think this is some of the storyline that Joshua 7 gives us, is saying, hey, first thing to recognize, your sin never just affects you. It always affects those around you. Secondly, even when a spouse, a child, a family member is sinning against you, that doesn't give us grounds. Notice he didn't just say to the rest of the group, well, build a warehouse, go stockpile yourself full of devoted things. You might as well just go have a heyday then. God didn't say that. He said, purge the evil from among you. I'm going to work with the remnant. He still expects holiness from Allie and Lori and Lizzie, which Allie has attempted to steward, is build the kind of family unit as best she can in a way that honors God. Have Kadesh still a part of the king home. How has that happened? She had to go through the Valley of Acor to get to that place. I don't think it could have happened up until this point unless you went through the Valley of Acor. And that may be some of the story for you as well. Requires a ton of discernment, a lot of prayer. But recognize God's still concerned with what's left behind. He's not done with that group yet. Which leads us now to the third thing. A few hundred years later, the prophet Hosea wrote this. The Lord will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. How amazing is this line? Now that you know this about the valley of Achor, how about Hosea's prophecy? So here's Hosea writing words about there's a Messiah coming through the Israelite line. Through the very people who were standing in the valley of Achor, a part of the stoning and the burning, there is a Messiah coming. There's a Redeemer. There's a Restorer. There's, there's one who's going to set all that's wrong right. He's coming through the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming through this group. Through that valley of Achor, do you see the crack in the door of hope that brings life? Do you see it? And that's why third principle, I think, from the story is that God can take all of the ashes and he can do something very beautiful. He can make beauty into ashes. He can turn a valley of Achor into a door of hope. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean, it means no matter how big that pile of rocks is, no matter how dark, no matter how big the pile of ashes is, no matter how overwhelming the mountain, no matter how many years that's gone on, you know that Part of this story tells me is that, you know what? They did purge the evil from among them. There was a lot of grieving. I pictured that funeral scene and how hard that had to be in the midst of all the other funerals they were leading that week. Can you picture that? And yet there's God still saying, hey, in the midst of all of that brokenness, I'll bring redemption. Through the Valley of Achor is going to come a door of hope. That's a word for the King family. That's a word for some of the other families sitting here in the midst of having to walk through your own layers of on the receiving end of the sin of others, what do I do with all this stuff that's in the category of mystery? I never wanted the trail of twine to go that way. We ended up that way. Now I've had to make these choices. What's my hope? In that valley of Acor, there is a door of hope. Jesus gets the last word. And like Ali said, if you will open up this journey to him, you can find 
He is enough. Jesus is enough. It may have never been the script you wanted to write, but you'd much rather have Jesus on that twine than no Jesus away from that twine. You want Jesus in the middle of all of that, and that's where your Valley of Acor can find the door of hope. Of course we pray we see it in this life, and we're guaranteed it in the life to come, because everything that's not set right in this world, here's what we're promised. He'll set it right in that one. And we're anchored in that. Of course we pray we get to see some of those splashes now. And so worship team, why don't you come on up? We're going to have some time praying for one another. We asked Hunter to sing this song, not the easiest song from a lyric side to internalize, but really important, I think, for us today. And I think the chorus about Jesus being enough, and though the pain of life can get to the point where it seems unbearable. During this song, Ali, I'm going to have you come down here over on this side. I'll be over here on this side. And if you just want to come down and you want to pray with Ali over here, pray with me. If you just want to pray by yourself, you can come and kneel here at the altar. But just to say, hey, I'm going through some stuff. I need some prayer. I need some wisdom. I need some guidance. I need some grace. Um, we're here. And then at the end of this song, I'll just kind of wrap up that prayer time and just kind of lead us through some corporate prayer together. But this is your time. You just respond as you feel led. Maybe you find yourself in the middle of your own mess, whether it's family and marriage stuff, or maybe it's something else. It doesn't matter um, what we're going to declare together. I'd like you to think about this song as perhaps a little bit of an anthem in the Valley of Acor.